As Tim said, my name is John Yaney, uh, and I have the joy and privilege of being uh, your speaker here today. I've, always, I've been in your guys' shoes so many times where a guest speaker will come up here, and you just don't know anything about this guy. And I've always, I always lose that speaker at that moment. So let me introduce myself a little bit better than just my name. Again, John Yaney. I'm joined here today by my wonderful wife, Lexiana. Uh, we have an amazing little bulldog named Daisy, and she is just the best little ball of energy. Uh, I love professional football. I don't know how many of you guys watch football. <laughs> love hearing that. Uh, I'm a fan of the world's greatest team, uh, the Indianapolis Colts. <laughs> how dare you? All right. When, I'm not, when it's not football season, uh, I'm watching movies, I'm hiking, and one of my favorite things to do is go fishing. My dad taught me how to fish when I was a kid. That's going to make a whole lot more sense in about two minutes. Don't worry. Uh, and one of the things that we thought was the coolest thing to catch when we were kids was a catfish. I don't know if you've been fishing ever, but most lakes, rivers, whatever you go to, all the fish kind of just look the same. It's just like you look at it and you're like, ah, fish. But catfish look distinct. You can see something a little bit different in them. So when we would catch them, they'd be about a mm, foot long. If you got a foot and a half, you were really, really lucky. So imagine my surprise. when I go to the, My dad takes me to the St. Louis Aquarium when I'm a kid, and I see a fish about this size. This size. <laughs> this size. See, it turns out catfish are a species of animal that grow to the size of their container. And what that means is if there's enough space and enough food, they will just keep getting bigger. So if you go to your local lake, your local river, you might catch that foot-long catfish. But if you go to a great lake, you might catch a catfish that size. Anyone want to venture a guess at how big that catfish is? Did you guess 9 feet and 650 pounds? Because they, that's the biggest catfish ever caught. It was caught in Asia. And it will keep, that's just an example, because I'm sure all of you who have been fishing have caught a catfish. None of you have caught a catfish that size. They will keep growing until their environment tells them to stop. Other animals that do that are the Burmese python. I don't, if you guys don't like snakes, this might not be the thing for you. The largest snake ever found was 25 feet long. Anyone ever owned a goldfish? Biggest I ever got my goldfish was about two inches long, and I thought it was the biggest thing I'd ever seen. You let that bad boy keep growing, 19 inches. They just keep getting bigger. And maybe most notably out of all of them, the animal that will continue to grow until it reaches the size of its container are people. You see, when we're learning about Jesus, when we're growing in the Spirit, we will grow until we feel like the Spirit has nothing left to offer us, and then we stop. Maybe you've read your Bible all the way through, and you said, I've read my Bible, I've learned everything I have to learn. Maybe you feel like you've come to church for long enough that you kind of heard all the stories, you've learned all the lessons, you've got the themes down. What you've done is you've created a container around yourself. You've grown until you feel like the Spirit has nothing left to offer you. And I'm here to tell you today that the Word of God has more lessons to teach 
then you have time in your life to learn. And I'm going to try and show you an example of that today by giving new perspective to a story I'm sure we've all heard before. I've heard that you guys are in a series called Miracles, God of Miracles. Well, today I'm going to talk about you guys, about the story of the adulterous woman. Have you guys ever heard that one, the woman brought before Jesus? It's a, it's a very famous story. But there is a very subtle miracle that happened in the midst of that story. And today we're going to look at that and how Jesus calmed the crowd with something we don't even know what he did. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. I'll give you guys a moment to do that. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we've ha- got it on the screen. I'm going to be reading it off. But uh, I'll give you guys three more seconds. Two, one. All right. Let's go ahead and dive into it. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees uh, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. I'm going to go ahead and pause right there. There's a little bit more to that. So quick recap of that. There's a woman caught in adultery. She's brought before Jesus. The Pharisees want her to be put to death. Jesus bends down, writes something on the ground. The Pharisees keep questioning him. Whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And then the crowd kind of disperses. But here's the catch. Here's the thing. What did Jesus write on the ground? What do you guys think it was? I've thought about this verse for years. Because whatever he wrote on the ground essentially turned an angry mob into a docile group of people just ready to go home. So what could he have possibly written on the ground? And I have found three things, three things that I think Jesus could have possibly written on the ground that dramatically change how you look at this verse and what lessons you can take away from it. Let's go ahead and dive into those. Scenario one, Jesus could have written the Jewish law on the ground. He could have written the Word of God. They had a whole Old Testament at this time, and it was very, you know, they came in front of Jesus with Scripture in order to accuse this woman. Uh, The Scripture that they brought in front of him was Exodus 20, verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Seems pretty cut and dry. But specifically, the verse they brought in front of Jesus was Leviticus 10, or Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Okay. Seems like uh, we've got some pretty good stuff going on here. Seems like they brought their evidence. They put some good stuff together. They know what they're talking about. They don't. Shocker. The Pharisees weren't very good at interpreting the Bible. If you've read the New Testament, uh, you've probably caught on to that by now. 
Jesus had actually talked about this earlier in one of his famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you do one thing and you say another. Your actions don't match your words. And one of the things Jesus talked about was pointing out a speck of dust in your neighbor's eye when you've got a whole stick sticking out of yours. Now just imagine this. I want, this verse always cracks me up. Because I can't imagine like a guy walking around with a full stick sticking out of his face. He walks up to you and he's like, you got something in the corner of your eye? Can you just like, it's really bothering me. You have something in the corner of your eye. Can I just get that? And like picks the crust out of your eye like my wife does. You're just like, no. Uh, Jesus says, don't. Acknowledge your own problems and then work with other people on theirs. And so Jesus is saying, don't, don't call people out when you've got your own problems, especially in the same area. And the, the problem the Pharisees had was in fulfillment of the law. Because I found a couple of verses, and Dan's going to go ahead and pull those up for us, a couple of oh, they got all skewy. Those are all scripture references to God as just, merciful, and the only one who's really capable of judging us. I found 26 in 20 minutes. 26 verses that refute what the Pharisees are bringing before them. Because we find out that the character of God is dramatically different than the legality of God. Because legality does not equate to morality. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were watching this new Netflix documentary, as we love to do sometimes. And it was about this doctor in Indianapolis. I don't know if you guys have heard this one or not. But he was a fertility clinic doctor. And it's when women would come in, because they were having problems getting pregnant, uh, they, he would help them get pregnant with their husband's genetic material. But what this particular doctor did is used his own genetic material instead of the husband's that brought him in. He ha we have currently discovered, as the time of the documentary that came out, 94 children that are a result of this doctor. How, when he got caught, how much time do you think he spent in jail? Not a single day. Legality does not equate to morality. And all those verses I just pointed out to you show that the character of God is to exhibit mercy. Only God really knows what's in our hearts. So only God can really judge us. So while, yes, it was correct by the letter of the law for them to have a basis to stone this woman, it was not within the character of God to do so. Jesus could have written the law on the ground. Jesus could have also written the sins of the crowd. The second thing Jesus could have written on the ground were the sins of the crowd. Steve stole two goats last week. Mary brought, borrowed her neighbor's lawnmower and hasn't returned it yet. Diane is lying. I don't know. But it's hard to commit, it's hard to punish someone else, condemn someone else when we're confronted with our own sins. Because people like to put on sin blinders, as I call them. Sin blinders. Have you guys ever seen a horse race? Kentucky Derby, anything like that? If you have, you'll notice there are these sunglass kind of things that they put off to the side of horses' eyes. Those are blinders. The point of those is horses will only run in a direction they can see. So if you put blinders on them, they will only run straight forward 
and the jockey can turn the horse's head to turn the horse. They will only run straight forward. People put on sin blinders. We will only condemn sins that we have not personally committed. Hey, I'm a, a liar, a thief, whatever, but I didn't commit adultery, so I'm allowed to punish this woman. No. That lacks so much self-awareness. Uh, for all of you NFL fans out there, every year they put on something called the NFL Combine. And the point of that is to see how big, fast, strong these guys are. And every year, without fail, I will be sitting on my couch with a full tub of ice cream, just eating away, laughing at guys who are slow. <laughs> I want you to think about that for a second. I was a varsity athlete in high school. My sophomore year of high school, I was the starter on my lacrosse team. I was like in shape and really awesome. My wife has never seen me like that. But I, I was really in shape. And we ran 40 times one day in, like, in gym, and I got a 5.5 in my 40-yard dash. I could run a 40 yards in five and a half seconds. 350-pound offensive linemen are running it in five, even. And I'm sitting there like, slow. <laughs> and the crazy part is I'm lying to you because I didn't run it in five and a half seconds. I ran it in six. <laughs> that lacks so much self-awareness. And I do it every year without fail as I make fun of the best athletes in the world for being slow. These people lack the self-awareness. These people in this crowd lack the self-awareness to look at themselves and say, I am a sinner, she is a sinner, we are the same. No, they say, I'm a sinner, but I didn't sin like that. So I have room to condemn her. But when we're confronted with our own sin, it's hard to judge other people. Because James, brother, James the brother of Jesus, would go on to write a book for people who didn't grow up Jewish called James. And in that, he wrote some scripture that the people at that time found to be common law. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That was common knowledge for Jewish people at that time. Yet they still found a way to condemn regularly. When confronted with their own sins, maybe, just maybe, he got people to set down their stones. The third possibility that I can imagine is Jesus wrote the name of the man that she was in, the, the adulterous man. You see, let's return to the scripture that the Pharisees used as a basis to accuse this woman. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So where is he? Where is the dude? Are you kidding me? This is clear as day. Both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. But I only see one. Are you telling me he died on the way here? No shot. I'm telling you today, this is uneven, unequal enforcement of the law. I don't know how many of you have ever worked with students before. But if you try and give them different rules for different kids, they lose their minds. I took, my kid, I took my students once upon a time to an amusement park very similar to Kings Island, and I gave them one very simple rule. If you are in senior high, if you are in high school, 
you can go off without an adult as long as you stay in a group. If you are in junior high, you have to be with an adult no matter what. I was the unlucky one that got stuck with the sixth graders at that point, and they complained to me after we left. All day, they just whined about how they didn't get to go on their own like the other kids did. Even though that rule made complete sense, different rules for different people do not work. Subjective enforcement of the law does not work. And so Jesus could have written the name of the man who was also sentenced to death, according to Moses' law, on the ground. And the people could have realized this is subjective enforcement of the law. This is unfair. If he's going to get a free pass, why can't she? So those are the three things in my time of reading this passage that I think probably Jesus could have written on the ground. Maybe he could have written something else. I don't know. But those are the three things. Which one do you think it was? Do you think Jesus wrote the law on the ground? Do you think he wrote the sins of the crowd? Or do you think he wrote the man's name? The answer is we have no idea. The author chose not to tell us, and I think that this story is better because of that. Because we now have more than one lesson we can take away from this scripture. I feel convicted in different ways, depending on how I read that scripture. I'm challenged in different ways. When I read that scripture and I think the, the possibility that stands out to me is the law, typically that's because I know that I've broken God's law recently. And when I do that, I feel the need to make amends with God. I feel the need to go to God and say, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for breaking your law. When I uh, think about the sins of the crowd, it's because I know that I've kept a secret and gotten away with something. I know I've done something that's hurt someone and gotten away with it. When that's the case, I feel compelled to go and make amends with the person that I've hurt, even if they don't know that I've hurt them. And when I think about the man's name, I realize that I have not been held accountable and I am not holding my neighbors accountable. And I feel the need to grow and escape my perpetual habits of sin. The sins that I find acceptable, I feel the need to turn away from. And depending on how I read that story at any one given time, I will hear any of those interpretations based on what I know I have done wrong recently. And the reality of the story is there's still two verses left. We can go ahead and put those on screen. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This story is first and foremost about forgiveness. It is about a big God who chose to not punish someone to the fullest extent of what he was legally capable of. But this story is also about growth. It's about being better than you were, being bigger than the mistakes you made yesterday. Jesus does not tell this woman, I know that you've, ah, free pass. I know you did something wrong, but 
this time I'm going to let it slide. He says, don't let this happen again. Turn away from your life of sin. And with that, I hear the calling to me to be better, to grow past the mistakes I made yesterday. But I also find in myself, I don't always know when I'm violating God's law. I don't know when I'm making a mistake that's big enough that it has crossed the line that Jesus sets in the Bible. I think that this piece of Scripture most prominently screams to me that we need to return to Scripture. We need to dig back into our Bibles and really find what God is calling from us. Because even if it's a passage that, God, that we've seen previously, that God has laid on our hearts previously, there's more to learn. Scripture always has more to teach. I had a coworker back at my old church. His name was Fred. Fred was 77 years old. And Fred told me that he has a mission every single year to read his Bible cover to cover. He will read his entire Bible once a year, every year. And he has told me that there is not a single time that he has ever read his Bible where there isn't new ways of reading it that he's found and new inspiration, new conviction that is brought upon him by reading his Bible. Fred has maintained this practice for 44 years. I don't know about you, but I haven't read my Bible 44 times. There's always something new to learn from Scripture. So today I'm calling you to get rid of your fish tank. Get rid of that container that you see around yourself and realize that the Bible will always have more to teach you. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a big God. A God big enough to forgive, but also a God big enough to call us to better. A God big enough to not leave us as we are, but a God who wants us to grow and be better for him. Lord, we love you so much, and we just want to be good servants of you. Please bring us new conviction in Scripture. Bring us new ways to read what you want us to know. Lord, please, 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 please be the God who teaches us today. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate you. In your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?